Welcome to the New American Baccalaureate Podcast. You're here with your co-host James Anderson and Eli Kramer. And we have an interview with Dylan Rodriguez for you today. Dylan Rodriguez is a professor of media and cultural studies at the University of California, Riverside. He received his PhD in ethnic studies from UC Berkeley in uh, 2001, also received his MA in ethnic studies from Berkeley and taught in the ethnic studies department at UC Riverside for several years. Professor Rodriguez is the author of Forced Passages, Imprisoned Radical Intellectuals and the US Prison Regime, which came out in 2006 and author of Suspended Apocalypse, White Supremacy, Genocide and the Filipino Condition, which was published in 2009. Professor Rodriguez's work focuses on the historical logics of racial genocide and state terror and uh, radical incarcerated intellectuals. He's a founding member of Critical Resistance, the prison industrial complex or PIC abolitionist social movement organization. And he is an author of numerous articles and commentaries. And he recently has served as chair of the Academic Senate at UC Riverside. So with no further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Professor Dylan Rodriguez. You're listening to the NAB podcast and we're here with Professor Dylan Rodriguez, who is a professor of media and cultural studies at the University of California, Riverside. And Dylan, we wanted to start off by talking a little bit about some of your work, uh, some of which is focused on state terror, racial genocide. And I wondered if you could maybe explain those, those concepts uh, to our listeners. And also, uh, I'm curious if you think it makes sense to view the recent wave of rebellions that emerged after the murder of Breonna Taylor and then uh, George Floyd, if it makes sense to view those within the context of a tradition of resistance to, to those things, to state terror and to racial genocide. Right on. Let, let me start by saying I expressing my appreciation to both of you for inviting me to be part of this. I want to give a shout out, say a big what's up to all the students that are listening to this, all the colleagues and faculty that are listening to this, especially people who uh, are incarcerated or formerly incarcerated, uh, people that have been involved in these different movements that we just invoke. I, I just I hope that the, the few precious minutes that I spend with you all can somehow contribute to the work and the thinking that people are doing around this. So the 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 short, big, loud answer to your question is yes, absolutely. What we're seeing in this worldwide, it's very much a worldwide insurrection against the racist, anti-Black, racial colonial state is at its core a massive populist response against a genocidal and proto-genocidal anti-Black logic, uh, which is to say that the entire apparatus of the modern state, which is to say modern policing, is premised on the social neutralization, the political uh, liquidation and repression, and as we can see, targeted destruction of Black people, Black communities, and Black life. So what we're seeing happen now is a long time coming. It's built up over multiple generations. It's, we have to view what's happening in summer 2020 as part of a long tradition of rebellion. And I think we also need to reframe this as people have been doing on the street, in the classroom, on webinars and elsewhere as something that has f extended far beyond 
a reaction, a populist, a populist reaction and, and, and resistance against so-called police brutality or incidents of police killing. This is this is quickly, almost magically turned into an abolitionist struggle, a black liberation led, black radical led abolitionist struggle against a policing apparatus that is foundationally genocidal, foundationally anti-black, and which cannot be reformed against those things because what the reforms do is, is they, they, they actually expand the institutional capacity of the police to engage in those kinds of measures through surveillance, through so-called community policing, uh, through, through new policy reforms that kind of let the steam out and uh, try to rebuild the legitimacy of, of the police occupation of particular areas. None of that gets rid of the foundational structure of anti-black criminalization, which is what policing actually is, right? It's a colonial apparatus, it's an anti-black apparatus. And in that, it is absolutely a genocidal logic that drives it. You don't reform genocide, you get rid of it. I wanted to follow up a little bit on that, just uh, also for our audience. Can you give a little bit of the kind of history and uh, perspective of where this logic emerged and the kind of current manifestation? And then second, as a follow-up, I was curious with your statement of the kind of magical appear, uh, appearance of this movement and where you see the roots of that and maybe if there's something different happening now, what is that? Right. If, if it's okay, let me start with that, that second question because I want to clarify sure. what I mean by, by magical here, right? I don't mean it's instantaneous. I don't mean it's irrational. I don't mean that it came from nowhere. What I mean is that um, all such radical populist movements are, in my view, magical. They, they do a magical, they do magical work. Uh, in the sense that they transform a common sense, they attack assumptions, they they bring people and they push the world and they challenge embedded uh, kind of political and cultural structures in ways that you never thought was possible five minutes earlier. Who knew that there would be a sudden popular global conversation around police abolition three months ago? Nobody nobody would have guessed that. And and I've been doing abolitionist work for twenty something, almost twenty five years, uh, and and I've been I've been you know, surprised and in other ways disturbed by the kind of mainstreaming and in some cases progressive and liberal appropriation of the term and concept abolition. But I never, even, even, even so, I never would have imagined that there would be a rebellion globally against policing that would bring abolition into a conversation such that it actually becomes the premise of debates. In other words, what we have now are everybody across the political spectrum having to come to terms and deal with the uh, abolitionist project. Now, sometimes folks misinterpret what that means. Sometimes fo folks have no fucking idea what that means. Um, but, but the fact that people are having to contend with it is an absolute feat of people's magic. Of, in this case, a black radical magic, a tradition of black radical magic. And so there's a long history to that magic to get to your first question. Um, it is, it is, I, think, I think I heard Ruthie Gilmore talk about this magic once in, um, in a keynote she gave at American Studies Association um, a number of years ago when she was the president. But, but it's, it's the magic that we actually have to honor as part of this long history. So when we think about the roots of modern policing in anti-Black genocide, in racial colonial genocide, in, in the United States in particular, it is inseparable from the apparatus of, of not only racial chattel slavery, but also everything that followed the period of so-called emancipation in which there was a scramble during the so-called reconstruction period, number one, to repress black reconstruction, right? The, 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 the modest but significant ways that black people were seizing on the apparatus of citizenship to actually build state infrastructures and forms of self-governance that completely uh, potentially would completely displace the chattel institution and the anti-black state 
And there was a massive white reaction to that, as we know, right? Students of this podcast probably already know the 1876 uh, Tilden Hayes Compromise was a sellout to the old Confederacy. It rearmed the Confederacy. It put down Black Reconstruction. And what it did is what it, it, it turned it into, it armed and militarized white reaction against Black Reconstruction. It turned it into white Reconstruction. And so part of that white Reconstruction was uh, a gradual organization of civilian uh, militia forces, the precursors of the modern police, whose primary mission and uh, purpose it was to control black bodily movement, black mobility, black freedom, right? The, 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 this kind of myth of black freedom that was fabricated by um, the Emancipation Pro Proclamation and the various uh, kind of policy and juridical reforms that uh, nominally abolished plantation slavery, but reinstituted it through the uh, structure of incarceration and criminalization. So in the, in the backdrop of modern policing, you had essentially uh, marauders, white, white, generally working class, white male civilian marauders that were armed militias who controlled and set up the, the policing premises for what came to be eventually be known as Jim Crow apartheid in the United States. Um, so you had that going on at the very same time, of course, that you had manifest destiny uh, culminating in the continental takeover and its, and its, and its kind of transgression into the Pacific. Um, part of that as well was a policing of borders, right? Meaning a policing of borders that didn't merely defend borders, but actually expanded them, pushed them into this, this, this thing called the frontier, which is, of course, a genocidal project in its very enunciation, right? The very idea of a frontier is already genocidal. The notion that there's no human, there's no community, there's no uh, ecology, there's no civilization in that frontier. So, so the job of the white world is to conquer it, to destroy it, right, to control it. Um, to possess it, you know, to uh, uh, expropriate it. Those two overlapping things are the backdrop of what in the early 20th century evolves into what resembles a modern police force. Now, the modern police force drew from those pre-existing structures of frontier conquest and uh, the policing of Black people throughout the South uh, during, during the, white re the reactionary white reconstruction period. And, and as that happened throughout the South in particular, the structure of anti-blackness was central because this was about integrating the foundation of the police forces with the logic of the slave patrol, right? So, so everything that I just talked about comes out of the logic of the slave patrol. The logic of the slave patrol was to, to. And I think we've lost Dylan's audio. Did I come back? Nope. Yeah, you're back. You're back. Just keep going. I hope you can, we'll, we'll I'm cut sorry. it together. I hope, I, I hope you can piece that together. I forgot. I lost my train of thought. I just uh, we had started about slave patrols. We had started with the kind of mm. emerging logic of policing okay. that ingrained with the kind of both the, you know, okay. the frontier movement and the, the right. kind of collapse of reconstruction. Right. Okay. Okay. Right. So, so, so the, the purpose of the slave patrols was, was foundationally to criminalize black movement, um, to criminalize enslaved Africans movement from, from within the plantation, from beyond the plantation and across plantation. That's the origins of identification papers are actually in the control of, of enslaved peoples and just generally black peoples, including, including unenslaved black people's movements um, throughout, throughout the South and throughout actually the United States. So there's a, there's a, there's a continuity, uh, a structural and historical continuity between slave patrols and modern policing. Sally Haddon has this great book called Slave Patrols that I use in every one of my policing, the courses I teach on race and policing. That's just to me, it's, it's for me, it's indispensable in understanding that continuity. Um, so that's never been broken. The, 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 the fundamental commitment 
of the modern U.S. policing apparatus to black criminalization, the control of black bodily movement, um, you know, the, the, what we now call racial profiling, which is to a significant, if not fundamental extent, really anti-black profiling, that, that's actually inseparable from the invention of policing, right? That is policing. Anti-black profiling is policing. There's, there's no distinction between the two. Um, one is the other, just like the very invention of the notion of a criminal profile in the early 20th century, around the 1920s is when it started to get some coherence. That, that was already at its foundation. It was racial profiling from the start, right? Both, both of a kind of eugenicist notion of wayward white people. Um, but again, foundationally, it was structured around, around a eugenic profiling of black folks. So criminalization and racial profiling are already at their found historical foundations, right? They're empirical foundations uh, in, in, in the archive. These things are already premised on the controlling and neutralization of black people's um, kind of social existence, their, 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 their capacity to exist as communities, as self-determined communities, as autonomous communities. So if we understand that those things are at the historical foundation of modern U.S. policing, then I think we have a basis to understand where things are coming from right now in the 20, in the summer 2020 rebellions. That, that this stuff is generations in the making. It is a, it is a political common sense among many, many, many black people, right? Um, uh, those of us that are involved in conversation with black radical politics, black radical movements or movements that, that are constituted and led to a significant extent by black radical thought, black feminist radical thought and so forth. You know, it's, it's immediately clear that part of that black radical common sense is that policing has never not been at its foundations about the control, criminalization, and, and neutralization of black people in the United States, right? So what you're seeing in summer 2020 is a response to that, and it is a statement symbolized in the killings of Breonna Taylor, of George Floyd, of Rashad Taylor. Um, here in Riverside, I keep bringing back the name of Taisha Miller, that, that these are not incidental, accidental results of bad apple cops. They are, they are the revelation of a foundational logic of policing and people are not fucking taking it, right? That, that, that this has to stop. Um, folks are tired of reformist approaches to this. They are tired of people trying to tweak a genocidal apparatus that it has to stop and that people are willing to go to the streets and actually risk their lives getting infected with COVID-19. Um, uh, uh, to make a statement to the planet that, that this is no longer going to continue. So I think it's the responsibility of everybody that's listening to this, that's taking seriously this, this insurrection, this global insurrection, to figure out how to take up that work in their immediate vicinity, at their places of work, in their communities, and so forth. And, and, um, and I look forward to having those conversations with folks in the, in the immediate and long-term future. I hope that answered your question. Oh, that's a great answer and actually leads into where I wanted to go, which is uh, including your own work. You know, it seems like that you see at least a potential in higher education, especially universities as the revolutionary insurrectionary space. But on the, you know, the other hand, I'm interested in your understanding of in what ways uh, this has participated or emerged for in the kind of logic of genocide. In particular, in your work, you talk about um, how scholars and intellectuals inhabit racial genocide, make sense of it, narrate it, suffer it, and revolt against it. Can, can you tell us more about how you see the academy emerging from and reckoning with participation in historical logics of genocide? Uh, um, and I, I, I think in particular, I'm interested too to see sort of what place you see the university playing or supporting or even you know, actually inhibiting this insurrectionary moment. 
Right on. So let me say this. I actually don't believe in an academy. Um, I don't I don't believe in an academy. I don't believe in an academy that 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 I can live with or live in. Um, I view the academy as an imaginary. Uh, well, most projects are imaginary, but the academy is an imagination is 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 an institutionalized imagination that is already colonial and is already chattel. The very imagination of the academy foregrounds something that in, in some of my some of my scholarly work, I refer to it as white academic raciality, meaning meaning that there is a presumed subject of the academy that um, is hostile to the existence of most of the people on the planet, right? There is a person who does the studying, an imagined subject, an imagined academic who does the studying, who collects the archive, who constructs the discipline, who creates the curriculum, uh, who determines what is to be learned and what forms of knowledge are valid, and um, then institutionalizes that in projects that intend to know and conquer the world. Right. That's that's to me, that is that is the foundation of the academic project and, and the global imagination of this thing called the academy. So while I am implicated as a professional you know, scholar who is part of that colonial chattel genocidal apparatus called the academy, um, I have to say that that I've never been OK with it. <laughs> uh, that 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 I understand and feel that hostility that I probably draw it on myself by saying shit like this. Um, but I'm cool with that. And that's that leads to my response to your point about the university as a site of struggle. So the university is different from the academy, right? The academy is this project, it's this imagination that I've said is colonial chattel and genocidal. Universities are infrastructures, right? They're places, they are um they're also imaginations, but they're also places, they're infrastructures, there there's classrooms. Um, you know, there's buildings, there's land, right? And and we could we could probably spend several podcasts talking about the university as a as as a kind of material colonial and chattel project. But in response to your more uh, I think focused question about the university as a site of struggle, let let me say this: I I understand the condition that we are taking that we are that we are all articulating in this discussion so far as necessitating a guerrilla war. All right, that 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 the genocidal project of policing, of modernity, that the totality of this thing that we're calling anti-blackness of racial colonial genocide, um, it, is, it is so massive, it is so comprehensive and um, permeating that, that we can't rely on discrete, isolated sites of struggle. Every site is a site of struggle, right? Let me repeat that. Every site is a site of struggle. The university, your kitchen table, right? Um, uh, uh, your, your place of worship, every site is a site of struggle. That's what I mean by guerrilla war. You have to appreciate how it is that these forms of domination, of violence, of, in this case of particular, in the summer of 2020, of anti-blackness, are so totalizing in their logic that the struggle against them has to also be totalizing in their logic, all right? So I am not, um, uh, in, in thinking about this logic of genocide and anti-blackness, I, I am not thinking about them as actually being successful. They don't fucking work. Otherwise you wouldn't have rebellions in the street. You wouldn't have a tradition of black radicalism, black liberation, um, you know, of anti-colonialism and, and, and struggle. So if the university is one important site in this totality, then we need to take it seriously within the framework of guerrilla war, right? What guerrilla war uh, kind of frameworks 
teach us from Africa to what we know as Latin America, to the Philippines, um, and to the United States, right? Don't forget about, in this moment especially, don't forget about the recent tradition of the Black Liberation Army, many of whose members are still incarcerated as political prisoners in the United States, that there's a tradition of guerrilla warfare grounded in Black liberation, Black abolition, and Black radicalism in the United States, and in which the university has also played a key role. So when I say guerrilla war, I am not simply talking about armed warfare. That is not simply what I'm talking about, although that is part of it. I am talking about the totality of struggle, including struggles around cultural formation, cultural production, art, knowledge, how we think and talk, rhetoric, the keywords and terms we use. Here's the thing. If we want to think about guerrilla war, something that, that we have succeeded in at this moment in the guerrilla struggle is displacing the term police brutality, something that I've been polemicizing about for at least, I don't know, 10 years or something, right? I've been saying, we gotta stop saying police brutality because the shit people are talking about, it's not police brutality, it's state sanctioned. It's actually legal, you know? So, so by saying police brutality and, 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 and um, reproducing this notion that, that the forms of violence that we're referencing when we use that term are exceptional, we're doing an injustice to our a kind of politics and our analysis. Let's talk about it as police violence, as policing, as, as policing, as police anti-blackness, right? We've won that struggle right now, right? You hear less and less of the term police brutality. You hear the term police abolition. You hear the term policing. You hear the term anti-black policing. Um, that's what you're hearing right now. That's, that's a successful front in guerrilla war because once you change that language, then the politics change, the forms of organizing change, the way people talk and think change, the way the, the assumptions that people have um, as they enter conversations about this turmoil also changes. I've never seen more liberals as well as more right wingers suddenly be forced to actually address radical analysis of policing ever. I've never seen it until this moment. Right. Until this moment, um, folks across that 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 kind of political and ideological spectrum would generally just tell you to fuck off. If you had a radical analysis or an abolitionist analysis of policing, they would dismiss you, right? They would literally laugh at you. I don't know how many times I've been laughed at and I've had to like pull on all my anger management skills to not cuss somebody out, right? Um, uh, because, because I'm bringing up an abolitionist analysis and they're talking to me like I'm some kind of clown, um, as if I'm not talking from several centuries of, you know, intellectual, political and on the ground struggle when I think about abolition. Um, so that's part of the guerrilla war. The university is a major part of that. Right. Um, the, to, to the extent that the university is an infrastructure in which we can take some shit over. Right. And this is because, again, as 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 other traditions have seized and occupied and infiltrated the university um, from these traditions of anti-colonialism, of black radicalism and so forth. Right. Uh, we, we actually have an obligation to honor that history by expanding those sites within these these, again, repressive, they're colonial, they're white supremacist, they're anti-black, they're misogynist, they're transphobic, they're homophobic, they're sexist, they're all the above, right? Universities are all the above, which obligates us even more if we have the opportunity, the privilege to do so, to, to inhabit those sites and figure out how to expand the capacity to struggle within the guerrilla war framework, to equip a particular a, a, a cadre or, or group of folks within the university to wage that guerrilla war in whatever way they're capable, right? So, um, uh, you know, I'll, 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 say that, I'll say that I understood a long time ago 
that my my I'll use myself as an example that my particular role in what I'm naming here as guerrilla war is probably going to mostly be you know 100% it's going to be above ground warfare it's going to be cultural warfare ideological warfare uh, it's going to be warfare in kind of public discourse trying to challenge people call people out um uh, it's going to be in, in the realm of, of 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 kind of educational political education like all that stuff is part of guerrilla war and we need to embrace that capacity of the university and, and our capacity as 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 inhabitants of the university, however contingent that might be, uh, as as part of a warrior's a warrior's obligation, a warrior's responsibility, and I think this moment brings that out in really really clear ways. Um, so I, I I I'm I'm hoping that that makes clear what I mean by inhabiting by, by inhabiting uh, genocidal conditions and genocidal apparatuses. It actually makes makes you uh, it should focus you in, in 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 kind of analyzing and figuring out what your capacity and skill set is. To engage in that in that abolitionist guerrilla war. Yeah, it, you know, just uh, I think part of the reason I brought it up is exactly that of this interesting tension you pointed to in particular, thinking about critical race studies and ethnic studies, and you know, since you know the kind of resistance movement, especially since the 1960s, that there's been these kind of disciplinary ruptures or sites of knowledge that are at least you know trying to grab the uh, material reins of knowledge production and see what they can do with it. But on the other hand, as you said, like right. how much do you want to be participating in what you, you know, understand as kind of uh, the kind of uh, at least the logic of higher education institutions definitely comes from the West and, you know, some pretty unsettling yeah. past. So it sounds like it's just a kind of ongoing struggle. It, on one hand, that these spaces have been really invaluable to kind of break the paradigm of knowledge uh, production and come up with, with, with new paradigms and resources, but on the other hand, recognizing that there's some inherent tension of the place you're in in the first place. And so, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So let, let me say, let me say this about this, because th there's another tension on top of that one, which is th there's a particular kind of nostalgia that, and by nostalgia, I'm not, I'm not being ageist. I'm saying like a people across, you know, um, chronological age, have, can can can, I've, can can kind of have this nostalgia for an era, this kind of imagined era in which black studies, gender studies, ethnic studies, and so forth um, were were foundationally grounded in community-based struggle, accountability movements, and organizations. Right. So that that era definitely did exist. There's a particular moment of struggle in in which you know student movements um, uh, were, were seizing the university. Right. So. So I'm not dismissing that part. I'm just talking about the nostalgia part, right? So there's there's a particular nostalgia for that moment that um, sometimes I think is really not useful to the moment that we're inhabiting. So so rather than reasserting that nostalgia as a kind of framework for what we do now, I think it needs to be revisited as um, more of a blueprint than a directive, right? Meaning meaning that there's a principle around the foundational moments of these different interdisciplinary, counterdisciplinary, and anti-disciplinary fields, right? The ones that you just mentioned in particular, that, that needs to be revisited, re-theorized, and restructured. So I'll say this, the way that these different fields have gone, and, I, and you know, I was in ethnic studies for my first 16 years, I was at UC Riverside, right? I, I'm, I'm, one of, I'm proudly one of the co-editors of the Critical Ethnic Studies Reader that um, came out a few years ago. Um, so I'm, you know, I got my PhD in ethnic studies. Um, and I got in, in, you know, I should I should also say I did my undergraduate degree in Africana studies at, at Cornell, which is one of the first sites in which um, black students and black scholars really seized an autonomous um, and self-determined site of knowledge production in the university setting. So I take all those things seriously. So we need to have a robust conception of what it means to do 
accountable collective work, knowledge work, pedagogical work, political and cultural work, artistic work, and so forth at the site of the university and in a kind of tense relationship with this colonial chattel imaginary that we call the academy. Um, so that's to say that much of the collective intellectual knowledge, pedagogical, political, cultural, artistic work we do can and should be accountable to on the ground social movements, to grassroots organizations, to artistic collectives, and so forth and so on, right? That's, that's part of it. My, my challenge to people is to say that what if, what if we think about the obligations as bigger even than that, right? What if it's not even as simple as people in these positions of professional scholarship and, and, and universities, right? What if it's not even as simple as people who are, who are employed by universities as scholars to simply be accountable to on the ground social movements organizations? What if they actually have to be accountable to larger traditions of, of, of radical insurrection and struggle? That's what I think the abolitionist obligation is in its, in, in its, in its most comprehensive interpretation, right? You are not only ob uh, obligated to struggle alongside and with accountability to grassroots movements and social movements, you are actually accountable to a tradition, right? Which means the forms of knowledge you produce, the epistemologies that you put forward in your curriculum, um, the theoretical traditions that you're drawing from, the ways um, that, that we, we kind of craft our, our, our coursework, uh, the ways we interact with each other, these things have to be accountable to a longer multi-generational historical tradition um, that, that extends even beyond the material and, and interpersonal accountabilities that come from being you know, connected to grassroots movements and organizations. Um, so, so that kind of obligation to collective work, to, a, to a, a political and intellectual tradition and artistic tradition, those are the things that I think folks are actually embracing. They're actively doing that and articulating that. I think it just needs to kind of spread a little bit because I think once you embrace that more robust notion of obligation to a tradition of collective radical work, it can actually completely shift the center of gravity or the centers of gravity within university settings, right? You can actually seize on the university setting to create relatively um, autonomous uh, uh, sites of knowledge production, of thinking, um, and of infrastructure that I think are vital, right? And of course, of course, they're temporary. You know, um, you always run the risk of an institutionalization that's going to crush the radical spirit of, of where things originated from. We just have to be aware of that. That's an analytical challenge, right? As soon as that shit happens, then we abandon it and we move on and say, all right, this thing's turned to shit now. We need to move on and think about something else. Um, uh, and I'll give you one last example. The example of academic departments, right? I am no longer convinced um, that in every scenario, creating a new academic department is necessarily the best way to fulfill the obligations I'm talking about, right? I, I am proud and honored to be part of a group of colleagues uh, here at UC Riverside called Blackness Unbound. Shout out to all them. Um, and, and that's one of our points of conversation. We're a group of folks from across the performing arts, um, the humanities, the social sciences, and, and it's, um, other than me, it's all black scholars and people that are grounded in, 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 in I'm also grounded in the black radical tradition, but every, everyone else is a black scholar except me. I'm the honorary Filipino in the group. Um, but, but part of what our conversations have, have been oriented around is the value in us not being an academic department, right? That we can actually create a kind of what Fred Moten would, you know, famously call, and, and, and Stefano Harney would famously call a fugitive, a fugitive zone within the university, right? That we are able to kind of, fabricate our own forms of self-determination precisely because we are not an academic department. Um, so at the same time, 
that we talk about these forms of knowledge, the curriculum, the pedagogy, and so forth. I don't want people listening to this to mistake that for me, for, for, for necessarily meaning that we have to create, constantly be creating academic departments. Now, on the other hand, there are sites in which creating, for example, a black studies department is absolutely vital and I'm on board with you. I'll do whatever it takes to help you do that, right? Um, I'm just saying that's not necessarily always what we need to be doing. Yeah, I know James has some questions, but just as a, a last kind of comment follow-up there, it definitely seems like, uh, what's that? I always say that uh, higher learning in particular is not just a particular institution or a particular moment, but like it's a site within cultural activity. Certainly seems like you're describing a kind of alternative to the hegemony of the kind of Western model of the university and the problematics within that, even Absolutely. if it has to I mean, kind of navigate and contour that. Right on. No, because here, here's, here's where, here's where, um, here's where the liberals fucked up, right? Is, is they actually, um, they actually had to make some concessions to, to on the ground insurrections in the university at the border of the university and out in the world beyond the university um, throughout the middle to late 20th century. They had to make some concessions because the university's very existence was in some ways actually hanging in the balance, right? And, and, the question is what you do with the concession, because they had no intent for those concessions to result in the vitalization of the kind of proliferation of cultural activity that you're talking about, right? This kind of insurrectionary and abolitionist um, and black radical cultural, they had, no, they had no intention of facilitating that. The whole point was to do the opposite, right? It was to create a kind of petty bourgeois academic, I'll go back to the term academic, a petty bourgeois academic site in which you would professionalize that shit. Right. It would no longer be insurrectionary or, or radical. It would be professionalized. And we have that tendency. We see that everywhere. Shit. I'm, I'm implicated in that. I'm professional as fuck, you know, and, 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 it, and it fucks me up all the time, um, which is why, you know, part of the analysis here is to say, all right, so like that stuff's happening. Um, what 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 is the what is the kind of productive political tension that we can nurture? within these sites of privilege entitlement that will actually mess with and undermine um, the academic part of the university and, and expand the capacity um, to think, to teach, to talk, to perform, you know what I mean? To read um, and to learn. And so, and so that's why I think that these forms of infiltration and so and institutionalization are always in tension. We always have to be analyzing that. Um, and I'll say, uh, you know, one of the key examples has been the rise of something called the Underground Scholars Initiative in the UC system. I'm proudly uh, with uh, with my colleague, Joao Costa Vargas, I'm proudly a, a, a faculty co-advisor for the chapter at UC Riverside. And these are formerly incarcerated and system impacted um, people who have come to the UC system to, to complete their degrees, right? So there's, a, there, there's a, definitely an abolitionist underpinning to the rise of the Underground Scholars Project in the UC system, which is to decriminalize um, people who have, who have been incarcerated in particular. Uh, so that they can pursue higher education in a public university, right? Now, the tension that Underground Scholars inhabits, of course, is that the regents and some administrators fucking love them, right? They love the Horatio Alger pull them up by the bootstrap story of formerly incarcerated black and brown people coming to the university to get their degrees. And so, and so you know, one of the ongoing conversations that, that USI has, that Underground Scholars have, is, is dealing with this institutional narrative that wants to domesticate their work and push it away from what I view as an abolitionist or at least proto-abolitionist um, political, cultural, and, and, and pedagogical commitment, right? Which is really to, to decarcerate the world, to abolish criminalization in the world, and to make it so that folks like them are no longer the exception, but are actually, uh, you know, the norm, right? What would it mean to look at um, decarceration 
as the norm rather than Horatio Alger pick him up by the bootstraps mythology. So, so yeah, so I, this is, this is, this is part of everything. <laughs> this is part of everything. Dylan, I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about your philosophy of abolition in relation to that commitment to the robust obligation to a tradition of radical political work and how that relates to your pedagogical philosophy, especially maybe in the classroom, because we haven't talked about that much yet. Right. We, we also haven't uh, mentioned kind of the, the two-tiered system of higher education. You know, I'm a lecturer in media and cultural studies. That's right. Riverside and yes, you are, uh, and some of the uh, <laughs> some of, some of the the projects that that you're talking about and are are engaged in are uh, incredible and I'm uh, it's kind of frustrating because I don't necessarily have the the time juggling classes exactly. at different institutions or the wherewithal within the university to to make those things happen maybe in quite the same way so I just wondered if maybe you could. Uh, speak to your own kind of ped pedagogical philosophy in the classroom and then maybe uh, with respect to some of those more um, professional activities that you engage in at the university. L let me start with the, with the, the two-tiered structure, uh, uh, this unsustainable, oppressive, exploitive two-tiered structure of, uh, of the university when it has to do with pedagogical labor. Um, and I emphasize the word labor here. Uh, what I think is reprehensible is that is that faculty members um, in the, especially so-called research institutions, um, but, really, but really pretty much any institution that grants tenure, in which there is a system of tenure, in, in, in which there is a replication of this two-tiered system of tenured and tenure-track faculty, you know, versus contingent faculty, right? I'll just, I, I mean, we'll, we'll just go with those terms for now. Mm -hmm. um, what's reprehensible is that so many faculty and colleagues that are t on the tenured and tenure track system do not think about themselves enough as labor. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they think about themselves, and, and this is, uh, a bunch of my colleagues have used this term before, so this is not an original thought. I'm just repeating what, what a lot of folks around me have said. A, a lot of the tenured and tenure track faculty think about themselves essentially as contract, um, as, as contractors, right, as independent contractors, that they're not tied into a system of exploitation and they're not implicated in a system of exploitation, right? Because, because you know, what the university does is it tries to hand out goodies um, to people that are, that are in the tenured and tenure track apparatus, right? This thing called tenure being the principal thing, but all kinds of shit, course releases, um, you know, uh, less, less of the labor that um, is, is kind of the type that grinds people to dust, right? Mm -hmm. um, that stuff is left for staff and it's left for contingent, contingent faculty, contingent lecturers and so forth. So that system is unsustainable. We are seeing that now, right? Cost of living, um, cost of living strikes, COLA strikes throughout the UC system and across the country are making it very clear. Grad students are playing a principal role in this because they too are contingent labor. Um, one of the dirty, you know, one of the dirty secrets that, it's not a secret, one, one of the dirty facts that a lot of our folks out there don't adequately understand is the rate of, of attrition, meaning leaving graduate school, right? That, um, that, that just marks the norm, right? That, that I don't know, around 50% of people end up leaving their PhD programs. And in large part is because they get ground to dust by, by the labor, by the exploitation of their labor that the university replicates over and over again. The vast majority of teaching, as we should all know by now, the vast majority of teaching in university settings, in research university settings happens through graduate students and through contingent faculty. It does not happen through people like me. 
right? It does not happen through tenure, tenure track, full professors, distinguished professors. They like to put people with those ranks on their fucking websites, right? To bring prestige and honor to the university. But for the most part, students are not actually uh, getting, getting interaction with those folks, right? Those folks are for the website. Those folks are for um, posters at the airport. Uh, the vast majority of the academic teaching, pedagogical, uh, creative labor is coming from people who are in the contingent faculty category and from graduate students. So un until there's a clear reckoning with this complete asymmetry of labor and the asymmetry of, of, uh, of pay, right, of income that structures that asymmetry of labor, the university is bound for a fucking implosion. It is not going to be able to continue either. Here's the thing is, is the university's tendency right now as a so-called neoliberal logic is to basically, you know, get rid of tenure and tenure track faculty, right? It's it, the logic that's moving along now is that, um, is that there's going to be a shitload of online degrees, right? A shitload of online courses and degrees you can basically fulfill completely through recorded online coursework, right? Because for the most part, administrators don't give a fuck about the quality of education that people are getting in the classroom, right? They, they want to generate degrees. They want to get as many people paying tuition or fees or whatever you want to call it as possible. And to the extent that they can essentially mechanize that labor by posting that shit online, um, you know, of stealing your intellectual labor or like, or, 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 or swindling you out of your intellectual labor by recording your shit and putting it online. So students just take these courses, get their degrees and go, and they, they're happy. They got their, you got your, their, they got your money in their pocket. Um, th then the system of tenure and tenure track is going to obsolete. It's going to obsolete. And, and what you're going to have is contingent faculty becoming the faculty of the university, right? There might still be some kind of symbolic um, uh, replication of tenure, tenure track um, uh, faculty for the sake of appearances, for the sake of pushing the prestige of the university. But we're approaching a point where, you know, close to 100% of the actual classroom and pedagogical labor that is live and in person, right, whether it's online or whether it's in an actual physical classroom, is going to be done by graduate students and contingent labor. That is not, that's not sustainable. That is not acceptable. Nobody should be okay with that. Um, and to the extent that tenured and tenure track faculty uh, don't think about themselves as implicated in that asymmetry of labor and of income and of, and of um, uh, kind of infrastructure, then, then we're actually contributing to it, right? We're actually complicit in it. So I honor every strike. I do not cross a strike, a picket line. If, if, if anything, I take my students, um, and this is to answer your pedagogical question. Mm -hmm. If anything, I think, I think students that have taken my courses during times in which there's a labor strike, whether it's, Hey, and this is, this is whether it's, it's, it's like unionized faculty or unionized staff, right? I'm talking about folks who work, um, you know, uh, uh, in, in, in the, in the landscaping as well as folks who work in the classroom, right? I do not cross a picket line. So I tell my students that really clearly. And, and at most what I will do is I will take my classrooms to the picket line as an educational experience, right? And I say, I don't care if you are against or for the strike. I mean, I do care, I do care, right? But I'm not bullying you to be for or against a strike. I'm taking you out there as an educational experience. I want you to understand what the issues are here, understand how the university is a particular site in which you have class difference, class antagonism, and it's always therefore a gendered and racial antagonism between different people who are working at the university, right? And so I've, I've taken my courses that, um, you know, that are talking about the prison industrial complex to the picket line. I've taken my courses that 
um, you know, introduction to ethnic studies courses back when I was in ethnic studies, I've taken them to the picket line. Um, so I see that as a fundamental part of a classroom education, right? Is that, is that you actually have to deal with the condition and the context of the classroom. Um, as a pedagogical philosophy goes, uh, I've embraced, I've tried to embrace, or I've tried to think about and constantly rethink what it means to, to try to do an abolitionist pedagogy in the classroom. Um, it's, it's very, in my view, it's a little bit different, maybe, maybe a lot different from the, in my, from, from what I see as kind of the stale ways and almost cliched ways that many of my colleagues, um, want to use and appropriate and cite Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed as their pedagogical approach. Now, look, don't get me wrong, that pe Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed and his notion of conscientization and, and everything else, it's been indispensable to me. It's informed everything I do, right? Mm -hmm. But I also think that people misappropriate his work and his pedagogy um, and, and fail to realize that the crowd of students that Freire was largely talking about are not the same as the crowds of students that are going to universities, mm -hmm. um, right? That, that we, are, we are dealing with a different group of folks. And so the praxis of teaching has to be a little bit different, which means, in my view, has to be more explicitly critical. Um, it has to be more explicitly challenging that, that we have to um, teach, number one, to the highest possible intellectual level we can, right? That's, that, that all the students that enter our classrooms, they need to be um, aware that to be in an abolitionist or radical critical thinking classroom does not mean a kind of ideological conformity with the professor, right? That's bullshit. And I tell them that it's like, I don't, I, I can, I can read bullshit. I can tell when you're writing some stuff that you, you know, are, are writing because you think I'm just going to like it because you, because you agree with me ideologically. That's not what I'm looking for. An abolitionist pedagogy means that, um, you know, we are, we are trying to equip ourselves with the most kind of rigorous, critical uh, tools that we can possibly develop, right? We want to think in a sophisticated and as nuanced and as layered a way as we can possibly think. We have to, it's our obligation to have an analysis that is as dense as we can possibly make it. You know why? Because, hey, we're, we're, we're some of the few people from, and, and this is at UC Riverside in particular, um, for students, right? You, I tell them, y'all are some of the few people from your communities, your neighborhoods, and your families that, that have this relative privilege of developing these skills, right? So you have to build this as your skill set. Why? Because it is part of what I talked to, you know, maybe half an hour ago now, as this is part of the guerrilla war, y'all. <laughs> this is part of the guerrilla war. You have to build your skill set, right? In guerrilla war, some people build their skill set as snipers. Some people give, build their skill set as, as organizers, as, as public, you know, public propagandists. Others have to build their skill set as scholars, as, as writers, as artists, as people who are equipped to have a political, a sophisticated historical political analysis of a scenario that can inform all those other things that people engage in in a guerrilla struggle, um, in a guerrilla struggle for liberation, for abolition, for freedom. Um, and, and you know what? Students respect that shit, man. Like, like we are in it. When I tell them, when I tell them, like, we're in it together, right? I'm in the guerrilla war with you. Um, you know, I'm, I'm for you against them. You know what I mean? To be really vulgar about it, but I think people listen to this probably will get the spirit of what I mean when I say that, right? This is when that, that that's central to my pedagogy, man. I need I need students to know that 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 I am I am with I am with you against them. 
right? And then we spend maybe the rest of the 10 weeks talking about who the we are, who the you are, and who the them is, mm. um, right? And that, that's across every single class I teach, right? I teach courses on the U.S. occupation and genocidal conquest of the Philippines. I teach courses, like I said, on prisons and policing. I teach intro, I've taught intro ethnic studies courses. I mean, all across the way, right? Um, um, that's, that's, that's fundamental to the classroom pedagogy. And, 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 you know, I'll say that it's a privilege to be able to say that, you know what I mean? Like this is this is not coming out of some sense of, you know, liberal philanthropy that I'm saying that shit. It's because like, I mean, I hope it's clear that that's actually how I feel. You know, that's actually how I feel. That's actually how I view my obligation to the world and to these students who enter my classroom. Um, and and I can't tell you how many times that um, the pedagogy has 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 led to conversations and work that has gone far beyond the university classroom. Um, so in, it, this is, I, I know I'm going on, but it, it, this is really just a crystallization, a very kind of short way of talking about how I approach the classroom. But it's to say that I encourage people who are out there who um, see themselves as doing Frarian pedagogy to rethink that, right? To rethink how it is they, maybe they're drawing from the spirit of Frarian pedagogy, but maybe rethink who it is that you're talking to, how you're talking to them, and what it means to be in a specific historical moment. Because I think Paulo Freire would be um, the first to say, right, if we could, we, if we could revive him, you know, from, from, uh, from, from the ether, right, if we could bring him back, he would say, you have to think about the specificity of your condition, right, and rethink what it means to do a radical liberationist, abolitionist, um, black radical, feminist radical, pedagogical work in this moment under these conditions to the groups of students that you're talking to. There's a lot that I'd like to continue to unpack and, and address there, but I wanted to go back. I appreciated how you uh, broke down the function and the misoperation mis of the two-tiered system. And I was interested in what you had suggested about there potentially being offered some symbolic compensation for tenure when it, as it's being eviscerated. And I was thinking about in the UC system, we have the academic senate, right? And that's one way of distinguishing faculty, yep. the, the non-senate faculty, yes. senate faculty. And you, you know this very well, as you recently served as chair of the academic senate. You still right? am. I still yeah. am until September 1. Until September 1st. There you go. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, and and I, I do want to get to some of the uh, statements about recent events that you've made in your capacity as chair. But, but before that, I wondered if, if you thought that uh, Senate participation and shared governance are really kind of lack thereof because I don't know how you can refer to shared governance when exactly. a, you know portion of the professoriate isn't included exactly. in that operation of governance. But if you thought that something like the Senate might be part of that kind of symbolic. Oh hell yes, hell yeah. yes, hell yes. Um, I, I say this all the time um, to Senate colleagues if if I feel like they're in a position to listen to me. Um, and this is actually where I've, where I've been, where I've gained a lot of political education. This is my, I'm finishing my second and terminal term as, um, as the, as the divisional chair of the academic Senate at UC Riverside. Um, I'll be totally transparent about it. I never had an intention of doing that job or do, sorry, I should say this job. I'm in it still. Mm -hmm. Um, I was kind of recruited to do it because we had some serious problems, um, dealing with, uh, the, the UCR administration and, and, um, colleague saw me as somebody who's willing to fight against the administration at a particular moment. And so I was happy to embrace that responsibility. At the same time, um, you are absolutely 100% on point with your analysis. If you look at the history of the foundations of the academic Senate in the UC system, um, it, it really comes back to something which you see surfacing all the time, which is that university administrations are scared shitless by unions. Okay, let me repeat that. Let me repeat that. University administrations are scared shitless by unionized labor. 
And I don't just mean among faculty, I mean unionized labor at their campuses. They, 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 are, they are freaked out by it, okay? They don't like the notion of collective uh, uh, kind of labor organizing. Um, in some cases where it becomes viable, they're even more freaked out by the notion of faculty organizing into unionized uh, bodies. So part of what we need to understand about the foundations of the academic Senate were, is that is this, first of all, came up around the, mid, the middle of the 20th century, right? And so it's partly a response to kind of ongoing labor struggles on the ground and struggles among faculty to unionize in, throughout the United States. So the academic Senate and this notion of shared governance was kind of developed by um, the UC regents and, 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 and kind of bought into by at that point an overwhelmingly in some cases almost exclusively white faculty at UC in, in, in UC um, campuses uh, uh, to basically create an operational solidarity between tenure track and tenured faculty and the administration. That's that's the heart of what shared governance is, right? The notion that the academic senate controls the uh, pedagogical and curricular mission, the academic, so-called academic mission, mm -hmm. and the administration controls, you know, the budgetary um, and, and kind of personnel and executive mission, right? So that's what shared governance is. It's, it's, it's those two bodies kind of consulting with each other, ostensibly consulting with each other to essentially run the university. Why? Because they want to avoid unions having a part of that, right? Or organized labor having a part of that. So what, that, what, what the shared governance and academic Senate structure historically has actually done is it's reproduced this binary between unionized labor and everybody else at the side of the university, which is to say the most exploited, underpaid, right, and endangered and vulnerable labor versus everybody else in the university. Um, and I see this coming up all the time. I see it happening um, even in conversations among Senate colleagues who, who in other instances have, have really good analysis and good institutional politics. But when it comes to talking about unionized labor, including and especially unionized uh, contingent faculty labor, lecturers and so forth, uh, the politics go away, right? And it becomes, okay, us versus them. There's us who are in the position of being um, the, the, the kind of ostensibly bourgeois, uh, non-unionized, you know, shared governance, tenure track faculty, and then there's the working class faculty, right? The proletariat faculty. So that, that point of solidarity, in my view, the question around that point of sol potential solidarity or, or kind of that, that, that class treason, the class betrayal among tenured track and tenured faculty, that's probably going to determine the future of the research university in ways that we haven't fully come to terms with yet. And Dylan, we have maybe two more questions that we want cool. to be sure to get through, if that's okay. Yeah, I got plenty of time, yeah. Great. So as chair of the Academic Senate at UC Riverside, you wrote on June 1st that expressing outrage over uh, the recent murders at the hands of police seemed profane. And in lieu of doing that, you went on to unapologetically state that the context of the nationwide rebellions can't be reduced to the recent instances of, uh, of police violence or even you know, a dozen incidents of um, anti-Black yeah. police violence. Yeah. Uh, and you uh, continued that such casualties at the hands of state power are a systemic, institutionalized, historical fact of American life that are experienced differently, radically so, by people in the extended UCR community, whether students, staff, faculty, or administrators. And, and I wondered if you could explain why you view it as wrong to reduce the problem of anti-Black police violence to particular instances of that violence, and then also if you wanted to elaborate on how the systemic racist state violence that you indicted in your statement there has affected people in the campus community in these radically different ways that you referred to. Yeah, I, I, could, I, could, I could keep it really 
crystallized for, for folks listening to this um, with, with one concept, which is, which is terror, right? If, if, we, if we take seriously the notion of terror, then the, the, the asymmetry of experience, the different inhabitation of the university or of America for that, the United States of America for that matter, um, uh, uh, you know, across different communities, across different bodies, you know what I mean? Across different, you know, social subjectivities, um, becomes more clear that if we if we take seriously the conversation we had at the beginning of this podcast around the foundational structures of anti-black genocide that are um, fundamental to the rise of modern policing, including modern policing in the universities, and in fact, including the academy, this thing called the academy itself, uh, then then the asymmetry of experience becomes, I think, that much more clear that 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 people who experience anti-black terror as a normalized part of daily life do not inhabit the same reality as anybody else. And, and I'm not just talking about white folks, I'm talking about non-black uh, people of color, et cetera. One, one could say the same thing about, about um, you know, the precious, precious few people in our university populations and communities who are indigenous, who are aboriginal and who are native, right? That the colonial realities are not experienced in the same way. They're experienced in opposite ways, perhaps, by those who are indigenous, native and aboriginal and those who are not. Um, so, so I know that that is a somewhat vulgar analogy between those two positions, but I think it's important to bring it up either way. Um, but, but, you know, the point of my writing that statement is I got fucking sick of all these proliferations of statements coming from university leadership, which is really to say, for the most part, university administrators, you know, um, decrying, decrying police violence, expressing outrage over the killing of George Floyd. Well, yeah, no shit. Right. I mean, that's saying the fucking obvious, um, and I found it actually distasteful and offensive that um, I was seeing all kinds of uh, symbolic public relations imagery coming from universities and university police forces, including our own at UCRPD, of folks taking a fucking knee, right? Like, like these are the same folks who look shit at me when I sit during the national anthem during commencement, right? Um, and a lot of folks do notice that, right? And part of my job is academic center. I have to go to every single commencement, right? And so I've gone to, sometimes my vice chair will go, but all the ones I go to, I, I haven't stood for the national anthem since I was 18, since I was 18 years old. I read Frederick Douglass's thing on the July 4th, mm -hmm. his famous speech on July 4th. And I was like, I'm never standing for this fucking national anthem again. I never have since then. Mm -hmm. um, and so all these folks who look at me sideways, say I don't stand for the national anthem and also won't talk to me about it. They're not courageous enough to ask me why I don't, right? They just think I'm an asshole, which maybe I am, but I'm much more than just an asshole, all right? Um, now these folks are taking a knee like Colin Kaepernick to express their outrage over the killing of George Floyd. I just found it offensive and distasteful because they don't stand for shit other than that, right? They stand, they stand, they, they, they take a position when the world is putting a, a, a kind of a metaphorical knife to their throat and saying this will not continue, right? Now they take a knee and, and express a symbolic sense of humility and outrage, and it's bullshit, right? Because at the same time, they are fully behind the, normaliz the, the normalized police apparatus, and they're going to defend it right now. They are defending it. They, they're, they're talking about police reform. They're talking about defunding. They're talking about all that shit, right? And, and the Democrats are in Congress right now trying to debate over, over how to best do it, right? And, and, and um, if, if, uh, if, if, if universities decide to take this stuff on, they're going to do their best to preserve and reproduce their police forces at the same time that they um, pay some kind of lip service to defunding and maybe even to abolition, right? Um, so, so I find all of that to be reprehensible. I think we need to address it for what it is. Um, you know, I, 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 I think, I think we need to call it out. I think we need to also be respectful of the condition of grieving and mourning that is defining 
the summer of 2020, th- th- this, this, these uprisings that we're seeing all over the world, it's mourning. It's not, it's not, it's not just people, pro- people use the term protest, right? Like, fuck, protest, it's starting to lose traction for me. It's mm-hmm. grieving. It is mourning. It is, you know, I was, um, I, I was, I was really privileged and happy to go with my, um, with my immediate family and meet some close friends and colleagues out, um, in downtown Riverside, you know, on, on a, on a, on a, probably the biggest protest Riverside's ever seen, um, back in early, I think it was early June. Um, I think, I think George Floyd's, you know, memorial service hadn't even happened yet. Mm-hmm. And, and what you saw out there was people commemorating and honoring folks who had been killed by the police. I mean, it was grieving. So what I find distasteful is all these grandstanding statements about, you know, decrying the, the killing of George Floyd when, when, when the folks were saying that they don't, they don't give a fuck about all these other people that are getting killed. They don't even know their names. They know the name George Floyd, maybe Breonna Taylor. They don't know people's names. They, they, don't, they, don't, they don't think about this as a normalized part of their condition, as what it is that's actually created and fortified the boundaries of the university and, for that matter, of their, of their county, of their state, and of the United States, right? Um, uh, I, so that's what I mean when I say that I, when, when I wrote that I found it profane, right? I just saw this proliferation of grandstands, public relations statements, of cops taking a knee, all that stuff, which I just struck me as, as hollow bullshit. I know some of it was well-meaning, but with all due respect to folks that did that, um, you know, Put away the well-meaning, man. Just, just, just shut the fuck up with the well-meaning. We don't need that well-meaning shit right now. Um, what, what I think, what I think we need people to do is, is actually take some a real position of humility and understand that it is their infrastructures, it is their institutions, it is their everyday um, mo, right? The way that they administer their university that is actually the problem, right? And, and it's not going to be solved with symbolic gestures that go out on a website or through Instagram, through an institutional, you know, university Instagram or something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dylan, I think we can maybe wrap it up with this one, uh, which is okay. uh, a little longer to set up. So you'd mentioned uh, campus police and you know the recent calls to defund the police has gained traction even among liberal progressives and people, as you mentioned, are kind of being introduced to uh, the, uh, the philosophy of abolition for the first time, the notion of police abolition. And we've seen at the K through 12 level, like the Chicago Teachers Union recently campaigned to get officers That's right. out of Chicago public schools. I think the Board of Education just voted against that. But uh, I saw last night the United Teachers Los Angeles uh, had a, a press release that they That's right. <clears throat> distributed, uh, noting that they were calling for the elimination of That's uh, right. police from the Los Angeles Unified School District and to redirect uh, funds from policing to mental health and counseling for students. And That's right. you know, nevertheless, though, hey, they won in Oakland. They won in Oakland. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 Oakland did it. Oakland took care of business. Right, and so, and so, this is what I'm, what, what I'm hoping maybe you can help help us parse out because at the same time, policing still remains hegemonic in most of America, right? And it's financially supported as ever in many cases, and even you know like mainstream Democrats like Joe Biden, right? He's he's not on board with the defund the police sort of thing. He's he wants to return to the whole community policing, a la right. the uh, ninety four crime bill that he. Yeah helped construct. <laughs> That's right. That's and, right. And, and so uh, anyway, like I, you know, I was thinking about uh, the University of California's finances and, and the money that's gone to police. I know the uh, people who uh, run the Reclaim UC website 
they did an analysis recently and they documented how the total base expenditures on policing across all UC campuses increased from 75.3 million in 2009-2010 to 138.2 million in 2018-2019, which is an increase of about 84%. And yeah. at five of the 10 UC campuses, the police budget more than doubled uh, in the time, including at UCR, where police spending increased from, well, it increased about, uh, I think, 104.5% from 4.4 to 9 million. And then I, I actually was looking at our general catalog, the UCR general catalog, uh, recently, uh, just trying to see what certain classes are being offered. And I noticed on page 26, there's this police and safety header there. And mm. it states, you know, not which isn't surprising, the university strongly encourages victims to report all criminal incidents, yeah. regardless of their nature, to the police immediately to ensure that appropriate yeah. action be taken. And so the point I'm trying to make is there's there's still quite a bit of support for policing, uh, economic and otherwise. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. yes. <laughs> and so, so I wondered, what do you think it's going to take to change that common sense view regarding the justification police uh, for police and what role educators might play in right. that kind of change? Hey, that's a brilliant question um, to, you know, to, to, to end with, I think. Um, I think what you've just done is you've laid out for me what the um, immediate, one of the, one of the most immediate and urgent political, educational, and pedagogical challenges, challenges is for all of us who are in this conversation, all of us who are circulating this podcast and listening to it. Um, I'll, I'll say, I'll say I'm a bit, it's not optimistic. It's, it's more that, um, I'm a bit more aggressive with how I think about guerrilla war and counter hegemony. I actually think the, he the hegemonic ideological religious devotion to the permanence and um, superhuman, suprahuman, not superhuman, but suprahuman um, existence of policing is, is being foundationally challenged right now. Um, so I think we are actually in a moment of, of the hegemony of policing being undermined, we might not, it might not be hegemonic right now. Yeah. I think, I think it might be in the midst of a radical challenge, a fundamental challenge that is in the sense of a common sense understanding of what policing actually is. Um, now that's not to say that the old hege hegemonic ideological attack, religious ideological attachment to policing won't be restored, right? I'm not saying that that's not going to happen, but I am saying that the moment that we are in, what we need to take seriously is we are in a counter hegemonic moment. Right. The religious belief in policing is being fractured and challenged by all of us that are engaged in these conversations, whether it's in the street, in the classroom, on webinars and podcasts or everywhere else. We need to take that the possibilities that are created by fracturing the ideological religious attachment to policing seriously. Right. Because we are in a fracturing counter hegemonic moment. We're in a moment where the abolition of police is is being taken seriously to the extent that even its most um, devoted and vehement and zealous opponents have to fucking deal with it, right? Not that long ago, those folks who were the the traditional pro police people they wouldn't even deal with abolition. You know, they wouldn't even deal with defunding, right? It wouldn't even it wouldn't even be on the radar. It'd be laughed out the room. It'd be dismissed, and it'd be it'd be you know it it'd, it'd be clowned. We're in a moment right now where you have all kinds of rethinking of, of safety community infrastructures going on that are centering an abolitionist possibility, if not abolitionist practice, right? It's happening in Minneapolis. It's happening um, in different neighborhoods and communities. It's happening, it's happening in, 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 in other cities. And it's, it's, by the way, it's, it's happening in the UC system, 
All right. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, pleased to say that I was part of a conversation at the system-wide academics, we're back to the academic Senate, but this is in a good way. The academic Senate had its system-wide meeting um, literally two days ago um, on Wednesday, 24th. And we, we passed a resolution basically pushing an, a, a, a set of recommendations to the UC president that are along the lines of, of fast-tracking an abolitionist approach to, 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 to community safety on the UC campuses, right? It's pushing defunding, demilitarizing, and obsoleting a police presence at the UCs. Um, and and it's, 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 it's pushing the fact that we have expertise, we have experience, we have connections to, to scholars, to researchers, and organizations that are experienced in doing this kind of work. And we can actually plan a new kind of infrastructure that does not require an anti-black colonial police force at the campuses, right? We can actually fucking do that. So let's think about it. So we are in a counter hegemonic moment um, uh, in, in, in the field of how it is that the common sense of policing has been for so long like religion, right? It's been something like uh, a kind of one of the testaments, right? That thou shalt not challenge the existence of the police. We're in a moment where that thing is being fractured, right? We're taking that proverbial testament, we're kind of smashing it a little bit right now. And we're trying to challenge um, this kind of institution in such a way that folks won't be able to piece it back together. My, my, my commitment is to try to, at bare minimum, sustain the critical and abolitionist and radical work we're doing such that never again can there be a restoration of the religious sanctity of policing. It should always be a political question from here on. That's the bare minimum ambition that I have, right? Um, now, the practical ambition I have is toward abolition. Um, and I think we're in a moment where this is possible. I think we're in a moment where all of us have to embrace it. Um, there's a ton of resources that we can draw from. Um, you know, shoot, just go on your phone, go online. You can you can see a bunch of, and I'll, and I'll send you all some links on this. If you, I don't know if you all post stuff as part of the podcast or not, like links and stuff as part of the podcast or not, we but cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you just a few things. But, um, but folks out there that are listening to this, you can see what it means to build abolitionist safety and community infrastructures uh, that, that essentially obsolete the militarized, uh, presence, anti-black presence of the police. Like that's the moment we're in. I think that the hegemony of the police has been undermined. It's been fractured. The question is how do we take advantage of that um, to build something that is beautiful, that is abolitionist, that is constructive, that is um, black liberationist, that is trans and queer liberationist, right? That is feminist. That is all these things. We're in that moment now. Um, I, I hope we embrace that moment. I hope we take responsibility for being in this moment because we're on the historical record, everybody. I mean, this is what we're doing. We are on the historical record. I got to remind us of that, right? History is going to judge us in terms of how we deal with this moment, how we inhabit this moment, how we do the work of, of, of this, this pedagogical, ideological, cultural guerrilla war uh, in a counter-hegemonic moment. Well, on that uh, note, uh, there's a ton there, you know, probably could spend easily a few hours with you, but um, thank you so much for talking with us today. We'll, sure, we're uh, out of time already, huh? Yeah, <laughs> we're out of time already, partially because I have a meeting in 15 minutes, so. I hear you. Uh, otherwise, I would just, you know, probably go on, let us go on for another hour or something and just put it on the podcast. But yeah, thanks for talking to us today, and we'll put all those resources up for those available. And that was our interview with Professor Dylan Rodriguez. Eli, I appreciated many of the, the follow-up questions that you asked Dylan during the interview. And there were things that I think piqued both of our interest. And I wanted to ask you, it's kind of a takeaway, how do you feel about advocating for the decolonization of higher ed curriculum? And in kind of in relation to that, the whole notion of uh, abolition as applied to the university context 
and you're probably familiar with many militant and radical scholars calling for the abolition of the university as we know it, the abolition of the university in its current form. And, and I kind of wonder what your thoughts are on that, as well as on uh, Dylan's particular uh, perspective and advocacy for a kind of guerrilla war uh, framework with the university playing uh, a key role as a side of struggle there. Well, uh, you know, uh, for sure, there's like, it's an enormous question and there's a lot of pieces to unpack. And, you know, obviously I have to, you know, keep in mind my own positionality and all this of a, a white Jewish scholar from an upper middle class background. So with all that kind of tempered and in mind, um, you know, first things first, for sure, uh, you know, there's a, the, the, the whole logic of the university as we know it today, it's not like it's this old perennial model. We're dealing with something that probably in the form we recognize it today is no more than 70 years old. Um, and, you know, maybe 100 years, 120 was the kind of emergence of professional organizations. Um, uh, and as a number of different books, Bridget uh, uh, J. Bledstein and other people have pointed out, um, uh, the formation of the disciplines has a lot to do with uh, kind of a way to organize middle-class identity with particular fields of knowledge that you could get some sort of accreditation for. That was what presidents uh, like Charles Eliot at Harvard had in mind. So kind of disciplinary knowledge fit the kind of emergence of industrial expertise and a kind of uh, burgeoning, mostly white identity. Um, so all that's to say that, uh, and there were disciplines before that, I'm not saying that, but as they're formalized today, it really comes a great deal out of that logic and heightened during the Cold War as tons of funding were coming in from espionage and defense organizations. And that, uh, that's a kind of, that's the way it was always positioned to get the money from the US government is we were gonna have kind of anti-ideological positive science to resist communist threat. Mm -hmm. So like that, that framing for sure is uh, not only highly problematic, but the whole premises it was built on don't exist the same way. There's hardly mm -hmm. that middle class anymore. The kind of system of tenure and middle wage labor that you know was gonna run universities, faculty don't have those positions anymore. And even you know the project of knowledge is organizing the disciplines and uh, at least in the humanities and social science especially is crumbling in the, uh, the kind of disciplinary boundaries we used to have. And even in the hard sciences, the boundary between biochem and physics, and particularly in things like, you know, uh, organic computing or quantum computing, uh, began to thin and become more complex and interrelated. So like, the first point I want to make is, sure, university, uh, higher, higher learning and how we think about the progress of knowledge is radically shifting anyway. And if you compile all the forces that made possible that university and uh, even earlier, like uh, what became the Ivy Leagues, there's uh, this book, Ebony and Ivy, it talked about how they made money off the slave trade and plenty of other sorts of unethical practices. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, poor, um, the, you know, the abusive work of uh, uh, First Nations peoples in the United States. Like, for sure, that's untenable, and we shouldn't think of it as something that's perennial that we somehow have to save in a simple sense. Uh, and for sure, we have to really contend with 
we're going to take seriously the race and ethnic studies and the queer theory that emerged, especially in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s as legitimate fields, we do have to take them into account in terms of what our own projects are. Um, and, you know, never mind the way in which kind of higher universities themselves benefit off the, uh, uh, especially as they're powerful organizations, off the current system, including the fundamentally unjust parts. Um, with all of that said, just with all the build up to a rather small point and even one that uh, uh, I think Dylan brought up, which was that uh, it's like getting from here to whatever comes next isn't going to happen all of a sudden. And so like you do have to contend yourself with the space as it exists. I don't think we're suddenly going to have a, a, a radically different institution appear out of nothing. I mean, if you want to say that in, you know, radical uh, uh, kind of uh, what are, uh, real utopian communities uh, that this kind of higher learning gets done, for sure that happens in those small spaces and that reforms the bigger, gaudier, conservative institutions. But, uh, you know, I don't think suddenly tomorrow the, the, I think the university is even more entrenched than the police. I think you'd have a much harder time fully abolishing all the kind of ways in which we've organized our, our knowledge. That project will be far messier and deal with kind of these tense resistance spaces within a greater kind of complex, somewhat unjust whole, as, as Dylan was talking about. And, you know, as for decolonizing the curriculum, boy, is that hard, uh, because like, like uh, we have to contend not only with just bringing in more thinkers, but like how much of the legacy of, you know, I don't know, people like, let's take, for example, in philosophy, a, a big debate is like, well, if you want to know how fuck things up are now, you, language, you do have to read some Rousseau and Locke and understand, you know, how social contract theory and kind of modern nation states, the kind of premises they were founded upon. But like, you know, how much do you emphasize them and how much do you show the kind of nuances and context in which they were radical within their own cultures? Uh, how much do you, you know, build a radically different curriculum with a, a strong plurality of voices? Uh, and, you know, and it, it begs the question, which we've already had in higher education, too, of like, uh, well, it's not so easy to get breadth and depth in the liberal arts anyways, and then compound, you know, a, a strong sense of a deep multicultural education. I think people really struggle about how we really ought to get the range uh, of things that are kind of are supposed to cultivate a holistic person. It's not so easy to sort out. So a long way of saying three things. One, we shouldn't expect, uh, you know, in some ways, I, I, I think we can actually totally expect the uh, higher learning to change and our old model is not that perennial and we shouldn't imagine it as the good old days and it participates in a lot of bad stuff. Two, it's also super conservative and has a built up of a lot of Western history. So I don't think it's suddenly going over anywhere overnight, never mind how globalized it is. And three, particularly with curriculum, it's an even harder question of how much you know, do you understand the roots of the problems and resistance within a tradition versus just drawing on other traditions and building a new? Uh, oh, uh, so I don't know. What, what about you? Where, you're, where do you land on kind of university higher learning abolition? Let me go ahead and expound upon a, a few points that you made to try to answer that question in a little bit of a roundabout way. First, 
it's interesting that that you mentioned Locke and and Rousseau. I, first of all, I wanted to ask if you had a chance to. I I know you've uh, mentioned before to maybe not to our listeners, but certainly to some of our podcast guests when we're talking about podcasting. That I'm somewhat of a fan of the new Rolling Stones podcast, uh, Useful Idiots, that's hosted by Matt Taibbi and Katie Halper. And they had, a, they had a piece on where they they were unpacking this segment, I think on Fox News, which was kind of like a book TV C-SPAN sort of like program. And, but it was you know, with a kind of right-wing ideology. And one of the individuals that was being interviewed was, talking about, uh, he was trying to trace this uh, genealogy from, from Plato uh, to Aristotle to, to Rousseau to Marx and making this argument about uh, the, um, uh, the importance of private property and the way that the uh, hosts of Useful Idiots kind of broke it down is because when, when the guy was doing this on the show, it elicited quite the reaction from the interviewer who said like, oh, you're quite well read and something like that. And they pointed out that it was kind of like uh, almost like a setup to a cheesy porno movie or something like that. And one of the guys covered, uh, crossed his legs at one point when they mentioned private property and Katie Halper said it was something tantamount to like boner obfuscation. And so anyway, it just remind, I couldn't, I felt like I would be remiss not to interject a, a little bit of uh, humor there. Uh, and, and actually, it, it's not unrelated because I think when we hear, you, you'll hear uh, pundits on occasion, less so these days, I think overall, but still on occasion. And maybe the fact that, it, that there is uh, fewer folks doing this maybe lends it uh, more credence in the, uh, the view of the general public, but they will, uh, they will use and they'll appropriate different intellectuals, different thinkers, different uh, philosophers for their own ideological purposes, oftentimes in contradistinction to the philosophies and frameworks of thought that the intellectuals that they're drawing on actually espoused. And so I think being able to actually unpack that can be quite educational. And there's a kind of pedagogical pro uh, project wrapped up in that. And it's one that maybe could be a subject to critique within the university, and that would require, you know, an, um, some understanding and familiarity with some of these, some of the canonical texts, which you had also also referenced. And that that brings me to the second point that I wanted to mention. You had mentioned, you know, the benefit of you know, reading Rousseau and, and Locke, and I taught uh, a piece in my Intro to Cultural Studies class not too long ago about the humanities and the argument that the author was making sort of set it up by framing the intellectual culture wars um, as kind of uh, at one point are being predicated upon differences in what sort of texts and what lines of thought should be considered canonical or should be part of the canon within the humanities. And, and the two figures that were kind of held up uh, and pitted against each other. One was with Locke uh, in, in line with convention and the other was France Fanon, who is uh, somebody that, that I know Dylan has 
uh, Dylan has used uh, Fanon's theory in quite a bit of his work. And one of the things that the author of this piece argues is that the fact that there was actually two different positions there signifies something important is that there was still consensus that the humanities were of value. And one of the points the author also makes is that with the advent of neoliberalism and you know, market hegemony and a uh, diminution in what we consider the public or common good, there's been an evisceration of faith and trust and veneration of the humanities. And so now it's not, you know, Locke or Fanon, it's like, we don't even care. <laughs> so, and so I think that that's kind of a problem. And, and, and so I, I'm more um, an advocate, I suppose, of, well, one, I think the knowledge production that occurs within a university context is still valuable. If it is also um, inevitably and inescapably fraught with all sorts of power relations and is certainly not uh, immune from you know, modes of repression and arrangements that are incredibly unjust and everything else and learning environments that are not ideal, et cetera, et cetera. But nevertheless, I think the knowledge production that can occur uh, at that site and, and, and the, the struggle that's worth engaging in there uh, is, is kind of paramount. And so I, I see some value, I think, in the kind of um, cultural guerrilla warfare uh, cultural, intellectual, scholarly guerrilla warfare that I think Dylan was alluding to, and in in but I think if if that's implemented and championed to the degree that somebody like Dylan and perhaps like myself would like, that might not be all that different from abolishing the university as it currently exists, right? Because it, it I think it would, it would usher in this process of uh, more thoroughgoing recreation uh, and new knowledge production, which might be vastly different from what we see at, at present. I don't know what your thoughts on all of that are. I know I, I tried to kind of pack a lot in there. Yeah, I mean, I have something similar to say that, you know, I think Dylan pointed out one of the hard truths also, though, is it would also mean a very different kind of professional practice. Because mm, yeah. the truth is, and they all know this, that it's like, on one hand, you, you spend so much time trying to legitimate yourself in the kind of boundaries of disciplinary knowledge and like you have an organized knowledge, even an interdisciplinary field of knowledge of which you can advance. And like, and there's these disciplinary structures that come from a certain period and certain age. And it's not just like producing new knowledge somehow breaks those down, right? And the, and the complexities and kind of ways in which they make you orient on the world. So like, I think that's much slower to change. And that's one that's kind of, I think where lots of scholars, especially on the kind of radical side, feel uh, attention. Because they know, look, it's this kind of uh, pseudo middle-class idea, increasingly pseudo, because like you, very few people actually get tenure and security. And, 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 like, and also, also, don't lose your thought, but also pseudo uh, mi middle-class because it, you know, the expectation used to be that if you get a bachelor's degree, then you're securing a middle-class future for yourself. Yeah. And and now with downward mobility and, you know, the advent of day class A intellectuals of this generation, that's no longer the case. But anyway, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, and the other ways we've already talked before that like, you know, there's an, or, you know, the aura that uh, 
professor, uh, intellectuals put around themselves that they're special and they're doing it because yes. they, they love the work so much, which yeah. is true, but also kind of, can be a kind of cover for ourselves. Right. Um, so like, I mean, I don't know, like, I, I, I don't know where to take, like the guerrilla warfare language, I'm not one of those people who's like so frustrated with war language or distrust it, like I, I don't feel that way. And uh, uh, on the uh, other hand, like uh, I might probably go the different metaphors because I don't find the war one very exciting mm-hmm. to me, and maybe that's just because of my background. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. But like on go- also ongoing warfare, I don't know. I, something to me, it just feels like instead of something that leads to progressive, you know, Dewey's frame of reconstruction to kind of reorganize and meet present needs, warfare can be very self-interested and this kind of ongoing crumbling instead of the kind of positive thing, which Dylan means it also builds these new spaces and energy. So anyway, it's just like a limitation to the war metaphor that I'm not, at least by my standards, I, I, I am not so excited about, but sure my background has a lot to do with that too. Um, yeah. And then three, like, abolition language is the same thing for me. If you know you mean by abolition that a radical reconstruction is required, I'm all for it. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, there's this tendency we have to think like, like, if I reorganize the ideas in the right way, it's actually a kind of hyper-rationalist attitude. I will be able to change society. And like society is much slower to change than that. Like real reconstruction is deep and there's always a past. And you're always kind of building on it and new problematics emerge. Mm-hmm. So like, uh, yeah, it's the same thing. Like uh, I, I can advocate abolition language so long as there's an understanding of this kind of dynamic reconstruction. And it, it's never, it's always messy. And the most interesting stuff, what I would really call kind of radical breaks the way you talk about it are these, the Black Mountain Colleges we've discussed before, these kind of radical experiments on the edges. Or, you know, I don't know, you could even call the Highlander Folk School or the democracy schools that people like Ella Baker advocated during the civil rights movement uh, as, um, or like the freed schools were actually part of an anarchist reform during the 60s. Are, those are all kind of models of, of real breaks that actually transformed culture overall in more significant ways. Like, I think you can find mm-hmm. that in those spaces. But, you know, if you're talking about big, glutty institutions like universities that live at the heart of power in a culture, uh, those always kind of have s- some sort of lag. And, mm-hmm. you know, the other last thing I'll say on that is they're also super complex and it's not like they have a consistent relationship with much anything. This is like part of ro- why Ronald Barnett has spent so much time with this ecological model and, you know, some super complexity theories. It's really hard to have just one idea of what a university does anymore because it's just such a behemoth with multi-sided interests right. and multi-sided space. It'd be right. better to think about it as, you know, a complex ecology where there's, uh, you know, fertile sites for transformation and growth and resistance to, you know, encroaching territorializing systems and kind of one end all be all. Uh, there's quite a bit that, that I wanted to flesh out there, but real quickly, a question for you, uh, drawing on, it, it's uh, Ronald Barnett, right, who yeah. has the, the um, ecological university framework and and so do you think that understanding the university as a complex ecology is mutually exclusive when also considering say the university is a site of struggle or 
do you think that understanding the university as a complex ecology might throw light on where the spaces of struggle are most potent? And yeah, I think I'm, I'm towards, the, towards the latter. That's what I was trying to say of like, you know, yeah. you have an invasive species somewhere, right? Well, you have <laughs> to deal with that within a messy system. It's not like, uh, you know, you, you try to cut out the species, but then, you know, then it connects with other things and now there's a hole in it and you have to kind of rebalance and then something else comes in. So for sure, there's a space. I think Dylan's tension is actually productive for, you know, like what physical space in the university there is today for change. For sure, there's lots of those spaces. And, you know, we would be much weaker without those spaces within that kind of greater ecology. No, mm -hmm. no question. That, I, I I'm just not so optimistic, you know, you could get the whole rainforest to get rid of all the old growth that's there. I, I was just going to comment on how wonderfully you're waxing metaphorical and unpacking metaphors today, yeah. but then, then you did me one better and, <laughs> and even went further with it. <coughs> Extended metaphors are awesome. And, and I wanted to return to, to the, the, the problematic metaphor that you identify, the, the warfare metaphor, and, and how you mentioned that sometimes it can be self-interested. And, and, I, and I don't necessarily disagree. I, I, haven't, I haven't made a firm decision about this one way or the other. But one insight that I wanted to offer was that I think maybe the, a, a counterpoint or an alternative point of view would stress that it does for many people, certainly marginalized groups, feel like there's a war that's been going on, a perpetual warfare, right? Which isn't actually all that different from the perpetual militarism that, that we see in, at the state level and at the geopolitical level. But given if that is the case, right? And if, if that's a fair assessment, then it, it makes sense to, to fight back, not necessarily physically with you know, forms of physical violence, but culturally, intellectually, with scholarship, you know, hege with a kind of counter hegemony, if you will. Um, and I'm, I, I'm admittedly kind of more keen on a, I guess it's a little bit of a more tepid metaphor or and it, it, it quasi metaphor, which is this notion of struggle, right? And I think it does make sense to think about ourselves as ensconced or immersed within some kind of struggle that's going on. Uh, I think there's an ideological struggle and a political struggle. It's, you know, we can't escape that. It, it makes sense to, to kind of advocate for struggling in a particular way, right? If, if, the, if this is at all meaningful. And so I'm a little more sympathetic to maybe that, that framework. I just kind of wanted to throw that out there. And then I wanted to return to, to this notion of the, the university being a conservative place, not just in terms of you know, mainstream political discourse or ideology, but, but also in terms of how quickly things change. And I, I don't disagree with that at all. But as we've, I think, pointed out, over the course of the last two podcasts, we're, we seem to be in somewhat of an unprecedented critical conjuncture, right? We're in the midst of a pandemic, which many folks think is going to irreparably change the university and maybe more rapidly than folks otherwise thought. And we've seen rapid change in discourse and obviously also more uh, mobilizing and organizing uh, surrounding 
the Black Lives Matter movement and and a, and a push to um, defund the police. And of course, there are, uh, there, I think, abolitionists on, on the ground have made that, that maybe more possible than some folks realize. And I, I, I think I should have mentioned that on the previous podcast when we kind of did our postmortem is that I don't think the abolitionist movement, meaning the, the movement to abolish the prison industrial complex, maybe re which really you know, it dates back decades, you know, Angela Davis first got involved in it uh, when she was you know, facing a, a lengthy jail sentence and uh, managed uh, to overcome that. Uh, but it also got, you know, a big kind of shot in the arm in the 90s with the formation of critical resistance. And Dylan was one of the, the founding members. And, and I think in more recent years with, say, organizations like the Industrial Workers of the World Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, which helped facilitate the uh, prisoner-led nationwide uh, uh, prison strikes that swept the country in 2015 and then, then again in, I think it was 2018. And, and so I think it, we need to kind of recognize that history and the influence that the, those um, intersecting movements have had on the discourse and on people's sense of agency in the moment. It kind of in relation to that, I wanted to talk about the concept and praxis of, of abolition just, just a little bit. I've, I've always you know, found a lot of uh, value in the work of folks like Angela Davis, as well as you know, people like Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Miriam Kaba, uh, who are avowed abolitionists. And I, I think they're all kind of more or less in, in, uh, keen on the abolition democracy that Angela Davis is a big proponent of. And she draws on the work of W.E. Du Bois, famously his Black Reconstruction in America, where he talks about the role of reconstruction in relation to abolition democracy, right? this, this notion that it, it wasn't enough to negatively abolish slavery. Right? There had to be these counter institutions uh, that folks would create that would uh, in, ensure uh, material needs would be met, as well as people's other political and, and, and social and cultural needs. And, and that the project of abolition is part and parcel of trying to uh, construct from the bottom up and or to prefigure these kinds of uh, counter institutions which are going to you know, give us a greater say over the decisions that affect our lives. And of course, that was cut short uh, because there was massive repression that, that ended reconstruction. And so abolition in that sense was never fully realized and and hence, folks like like Davis will argue right, there's there's been a and she's not the only one. Like think about somebody like a Michelle Alexander in the New Jim Crow. There's been a, a, their arguments suggest there's been a continuation of the kind of uh, a, a oppression that was instantiated with slavery that that then uh, continues and then transmogrifies into Jim Crow or in, and then into mass incarceration. And and so the project of abolition today needs to, as people like Davis suggest, needs to adopt this or, or to take into account the importance of the positive fac uh, facets of trying to build community, trying to 
satisfy all of our needs in ways that don't rely on the criminal punishment system, in ways that don't reproduce notions of justice that tether it to punishment and to violence, that don't rely on uh, the institution of policing and violence work that, that find other ways to uh, resolve social harm to deal with it and to you know help uh, restore or trans and or transform individuals and, and communities that have been harmed and and so I think that abolition democracy praxis is something that might be applied to the university context insofar as you know something like engaging in these various sites of struggle not only you know the the kind of pedagogies that we've been talking about and and by the way uh, there's been quite a few webinars lately on abolition. I know Haymarket Books had one abolitionist teaching in the future of our, of our schools, the Education for Liberation Network, I believe in conjunction with critical resistance, had a repurposing our pedagogies, um, abolitionist teaching in a global pandemic webinar recently. And I think these further suggest, right, that we are in this uh, historical moment and that there's uh, a real opportunity here just you know crises sometimes beget opportunities there's a real opportunity to uh, push for abolition in a meaningful sense right so it's not just defund the police or get cops off campus right but the money that and there's a lot of it that was going toward that could be redirected in ways that are going to allow us to create these kind of counter institutions that allow us to exercise more agency together with each other. And I, I mentioned those webinars. I also wanted to mention strikeuniversity.org, which is kind of an offshoot or affiliate with the cost of living adjustment movement that kicked off at UC Santa Cruz. And Strike University, uh, this summer, they're doing kind of all things abolition. They have an abolition in the time of COVID and uprisings uh, coming up. It's a webinar coming up, I think, uh, actually really soon. And then there's the police abolition and work study session that they're doing every Wednesday, 12 to 2. StrikeUniversity.org is the website with, where that information is posted. And before moving on, I wanted to mention too that it's not just that there are these you know, radical theorists that are trying to put forward these ideas, right? A lot of the people that I mentioned, Angela Davis, Mariam Kaba, right, they're doing a organizing on the ground, right, and their, their abolitionist praxis can't be separated from that. And likewise, you know, I'm particularly interested in, you know, media studies and things like, and, and I also don't think that we can think about abolition without thinking about those who are most impacted, which would be those who are currently in cages. And I think that the more that we um, are in dialogue and correspondence with those folks and, and helping and showing solidarity in their struggles, like with the, the um, prisoner strikes recent years, and with you know, giving voices to, to those whose uh, voices have been marginalized. And so uh, you know, doing things like prisoner media, that sort of thing. I know my, my sister was incarcerated for about a, a year and a half, maybe a little bit less in Illinois a, a while back. And she and I also uh, contributed, a little bit of shameless self-promotion here, uh, contributed a, a review piece looking at the College Behind Bars documentary to the NAB uh, blog site. And folks can check that out if, if they're interested. And so the kind of prisoner media and also prisoner education, which again has its limits and is in even more of a you know, colonized 
uh, oftentimes overtly brutal context, nevertheless presents opportunities and can be part of an abolitionist project, depends upon kind of how it's directed. But uh, my, my point is that one, the abolition democracy that people like like Davis drawing on Du Bois advocate, I think is maybe one of the most potentially valuable ways that we could engage in that struggle that I was referencing in the university and, and outside of it. And then also that we're in this kind of critical conjuncture where abolitionists can exert influence that they previously were not able to do. I know you mentioned that you're, you're a fan of some of the mainstream political comedy satire shows like The Daily Show with, with Trevor Noah and, uh, which, and, and Colbert, right? I, and I actually wrote my master's thesis about uh, using Herman Chomsky's propaganda model as a guide to analyze The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and, and the Colbert Rapport. More rec recently, I've, and so I you know, looked at them with a little bit of a critical lens, but also appreciating some of the, the power of mainstream satire. And more recently, I've gotten into John Oliver and Hassan Minaj, uh, the latter host the, the Patriot Act on Netflix, which uh, has really takes to task a lot of authoritarian governments like Saudi Saudi Arabia, which has been backed by the United States, and and uh, Netflix even uh, canceled the uh, local Saudi Arabia uh, uh, release of his show because he criticized uh, MBS. <coughs> and uh, so anyway, he's Hassan Minhaj on the Patriot Act has, I, I think, done several episodes where he talks about police police and prisons and i know john oliver too he's had a segment on police reform in the last two weeks or so and another segment on prisons and jails just a few days ago really pushing for decarceration you know during the pandemic which is another way that i think these issues intersect because the you know especially here in california institutions like san quentin for example massive outbreaks of COVID 19 and uh, abolitionists, as, as well as you know, other folks on the left and those who are just you know, sympathetic to human rights uh, issues and abuses uh, and want, want to you know, do something about that are really pushing for decarceration. Uh, and here in Riverside, the, the sheriff is doing his kind of best Joe Arpaio impression going on Fox News, refusing to release anybody, uh, despite the you know, uh, very serious and quite dire health concerns. And so with these kind of intersecting crises and issues and the opportunities that I think arise when you have, you know, mainstream, relatively mainstream, somewhat, you know, liberal left, but still relatively mainstream uh, political satirists like John Oliver, like Hassan Minaj, and then like the, you know, the Democrats that are supporting defund the police. Uh, when you have that kind of change in discourse I think the the doors are open and that struggle has to be more concerted and arguably more directional and and so I think emphasizing something like abolition democracy within the university context there is a kind of responsibility that I feel as a as a a scholar to kind of promote that to the extent possible while always keeping in mind what Dylan pointed, pointed out, what you pointed out, what I've pointed out, which is that 
the university is it's conservative by nature, to say the least. It has legacies of uh, oppression and colonialism wrapped up within the institution, not to mention you know racism that persists and gender-based discrimination. And obviously exploitation is now increasingly inbuilt within the economic arrangements of the university. Uh, but that's, I think, all the more reason right, to engage it uh, as a site of struggle within this kind of abolitionist framework. And I think that's a good place for me to stop. I know I tried to fit in a lot there. Eli, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, you know, I, uh, there, there was uh, lots of good stuff there, but way too much for me to respond to. Uh, uh, so I'm going to just try to pick a few themes to wrap this up here, if that sounds good. Go for uh, it. Um, uh, one is, you know, I think it's a bad idea to, to imagine, you know, metaphors as something that can be right or wrong. It's more like how much efficacious work do they do? What, what do they organize and what do they leave out? Mm -hmm. Like how much, uh, uh, you know, effective force do they have in our life? So like, to, I, it's not that I think the, me the war metaphor is wrong. It has its uses and, you know, it makes sense if you're a community uh, especially one of color that comes from a, you know, a pretty much constant state of state violence. And, you know, Foucault has his own advocation of the state of war as a kind of ongoing understanding of knowledge power and its dynamics and multifarious forms. It doesn't really matter. There's a lot of variety there. You know, same goes for abolition too. So like for me, it's not a question of like picking the right metaphor and going with it forever. It's which ones are doing effective work. And I agree that kind of abolition democracy is a great example of something that's been really powerful as a, uh, a reconstructive force for us. Um, and yeah, I, I have no agreement there with that. Um, and, you know, even my tensions with the war metaphor, it's more like a trade-off that I wonder about than something that's uh, an absolute good or bad. Um, last thing I'll end with is I think it would, I, I, I tend, to, I should uh, make a distinction that I think universities are ontologically conservative which can include something like political conservatism, but that's not really what we mean. Right. Because like they're just, if you think of like current universities are really big centers of higher learning where like kind of older forces and new creative uh, capacities of knowledge uh, production and learning happen. Um, whenever they're really big and really powerful, they're kind of inherent with all the stuff that that civilization has developed you know, over, you know, thousands of years. The same as, you know, with Tibetan monasteries, which if you don't know the history in Tibet, were actually uh, essentially a part of Tibetan governance for, you know, I don't know, you know, multi-millennia. And the same thing, they had deeply complicit and problematic relationships with wars and empire and other things. So, I mean, that's what I mean by, and in resistance sites, if they become sites of liberal or humanistic or kind of whatever you want to call it, broad ways to organic learning, they also keep that pretty well and are hard to change. I just mean conservative of it's like, there's, you know, again, going back to the forest metaphor, there's like a lot of different plants and vegetation and history. It's not like you're, it's easy to rip it all out and still have the ecology there. It's complex and layered and not easy to untether and probably never will be tethered if you want it to be a healthy ecology in the first place. Mm -hmm. So that's all I mean by it. And I, I, I think it, of course, it has places of resistance. That's good. Um, and, uh, and to be expected of that ecology. 
to imagine the solution is to get rid of the forest kind of mistakes the ecology you have in front of you. Uh, maybe that's more of my point. And there will always be need for resistance sites and there will always be spots of atrophy. So that's, you know, so long as there's things like universities going on at least. And, and, um, and what, what in that metaphor is the, the forest exactly? The, the whole university, I don't know, you, you know, the, the whole ecological system that includes, you know, microecologies within it and other things. So like if you're going to like the only solution is to burn down the forest, I don't think you, it's only something else replaces it. Even if you burn it down, all the soot and other thing affects certain other plants and, you know, makes prairie grass. I don't know. Mm -hmm. There's just, there's not quite something to get rid of. There's just the kind of glut of what it is, but there's a lot of places for struggle and resistance and transformation within that within that system. And not all the atrophy is bad. There's also lots of atrophy that leads to spaces for resistance that couldn't exist there otherwise. You know, radical thinkers would have no maybe place in a, another culture if, if there wasn't something like a university there in the first place. Like, you know, example of that is like, uh, Kant is one of my professors used to say is the only person in German history to have a law explicitly made for him. You know, the Prussian government said he was not allowed to write about religion. And, you know, he's a, a kind of, I'm not sure an intellectual like that would have had the public space to say what he said in the limits of religion within mere reason if he didn't have that kind of, you know, the weird coincidences of history allowed a scholar like that to work privately on his own systematic thought. So that's the way an oncology can actually work for kind of critical change. Or, or and so, um, yeah, so I see lots of opportunity for resistance sites, but it's in this wonderfully complex beast. That's not, I'm, I'm not convinced it's gonna be ever much of a unified at anything. It's always gonna be this kind of messy, rich, you know, growth. And you have to pick parts of it to help cultivate and direct as you can. So, uh, and what the, what the last thing I was gonna say, there was something uh, striking about what you said. Oh, and yeah, I, I emphasize with the language of struggle, but the same thing I think we can be supportive of Dylan's metaphors because they recognize an inset about the place he is and the kind of necessary resistance to beyond brutal state violence. We can see the advantage of the struggle of this kind of constant reconstructive effort. You know, so long as we acknowledge, you know, they're, we use them so long as they build the kind of practice we want. And when we need others, we grab for those too. So anyway, that was my last point there. Okay, I, I just uh, a few things before we maybe start to wrap up. Yeah. First, you're familiar with the song Mr. Tambourine Man by Bob Dylan? Yeah, yeah. And, and so the, the last verse or so, take me disappearing through the smoke rings of my mind, through the foggy ruins of time, far past the frozen leaves, the haunted, frightened trees out to the windy beach, far from the twisted reach of crazy sorrow. And your forest metaphor got, <laughs> got me thinking about that line about uh, the frozen leaves, the haunting, frightened trees. And and what I wanted to put forward for you to maybe comment on, on briefly is if the forest is not benign, right, in, within the, this metaphor, and somebody like Dylan m might argue that, that it's not, right, that those other ecologies and microecologies are rife with the, maybe the ideas that serve to naturalize or legitimize the brutal state violence that somebody like Dylan would say that we necessarily must resist, hence the war metaphor. And so I'm wondering if you see the, the forest as being somewhat neutral, those, those you know, microecologies in the surrounding uh, context of the university as being uh, more neutral, 
or if you think that there are these kind of interlocking systems of oppression that, that need to be taken into account and, and that there's very little within the university that is removed from that. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I guess it's not uh, really uh, either or for me, like, yeah. Forest metaphor, the whole point is it carries the good and bad of a civilization with it, especially if it's so centered in the kind of centralized power and sources and imagination of a particular civilization. Like, let me put it this way, universities have a lot of money, a lot of power and a lot of shape. If we think universities in the macro level, even in the United States, sometimes what is it, the UC systems like the biggest funder and the like one of the biggest job, no, it's not the UC, it's one of the states has one of like the biggest job providers in the whole state. Yeah, yeah, in, are, in California, the yeah, yeah. California is, yeah. And, and because they're built out of that, that particular civilization, they have the, you know, the opportunities and the baggage that comes with that. That's all my point is there. I see. Uh, so it's like all of the above. Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and like any time if you're really thinking of a university as like a central force for higher learning and a civilization. I'm not talking about a culture. Smaller cultures may be able to have things that are more, less participatory in, you know, sort of kind of fundamental state violence. Um, uh, for sure, universities have loaded baggage, but just because they have loaded baggage, there's also lots of resistance sites that developed in that loaded history too, mm -hmm. like in the bigger culture. Yes. Like it, ca it carries a lot of the weight of whatever's happened in a particular civilization in the U.S. that includes state violence and the history of genocide and slavery. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it's complicit in that. And it's often been, you know, the sites of resistance within that too. But I think it's more like, you know, I guess you would have to really, for sure, the culture would have to radically change, including universities, the sites to help that along for universities to change. And I see that as a slower process because it's not easy to erase. There's so much habits and baggage that's part of a civilization. You don't so much erase it as reconstruct it. Sometimes it's a pretty radical reconstruction, but that, you know that's for sure messy work. And we're probably at one of those moments where a pretty significant rational, uh, radical reconstruction is needed. Um, Can I chime in with maybe yeah. two, two quick points? First, I, I'm, I'm returning again to to your to your forest metaphor, and and I, I think I'm in agreement, even though no matter which way you slice it, that burning down the forest is typically not the most efficacious uh, Maybe a controlled burn. Yeah, I well, don't know. You know, burn, yeah, <laughs> yeah, something like that. I, I was going to say, I, I'm kind of more interested in, I don't actually know how this, I can make this work with the extended metaphor, but more interested in kind of displacement and the rendering of, uh, the rendering obsolete of those, those, residues that stand in the way of realizing um, a new notion and practice of, of justice and a new uh, notion, a notion of uh, liberatory, emancipatory education. And, yeah, I just and, don't think there's a new, I guess that's the difference. There's, there's degrees of that, right? No new is ever completely new. I'm not saying it, you know, it's um, sure. that we can't have something radically revolutionary, but I think Again, maybe I, you know, I'm thinking more in my Deleuzean, think about Deleuze here, right, too. We can stop threatening territorializations that doom to eat everything up. I don't know, an invasive species. And yeah. some of those just have to be completely taken away as much as possible. But it's yeah. always mindful of a broader ecological context. 
And right. erasing doesn't, it's not like erasing and burning everything down. It's more like a cold or strategic rip out. And there's always, it's always kind of mindful of a complex environment in which it's doing that. I think that's right. the and, point. Uh, yeah, I'm, and I'm glad, that, glad you mentioned erasure because there's two yeah. points that I wanted to make about that. First, uh, with respect to, to what we were just discussing, I, of course, would want to, to recognize the uh, storied traditions of, of resistance, right? It's not, it is never just new, right? So now, like with the massive uprisings that we've seen, I, I think some people forget that the, the issues that are being brought to the fore this isn't the first time that they've been raised. And it's also not the, it's not the first rodeo for many of the organizers that are helping make this possible. And, and, and I again pointed to the tradition of abolition as being really essential to, I think, getting this new movement off the ground. And then, in, and so I'm kind of more interested in drawing from that tradition, but then also recognizing that the kind of say mutual aid and solidarity and liberatory education uh, that could help displace or render obsolete uh, those those barriers to it, um, it, it should be expounded upon, right? And so yes, it's never new, but it isn't as fully developed as is desirable. I think is the way that I would maybe frame that. And then sure. kind of in in relation to that, uh, on the the flip side, I think the erasure of these radical political traditions can be uh, can, can also represent barriers to realizing what I think and what we think is, is desirable. And I was thinking about, for example, even some of the most important work that it, that's, it, it's impossible to, to extricate from some of these issues. So for example, Michelle Alexander's work, The New Jim Crow, as well as the Ava DuVernay documentary, uh, 13th, which I think offer really, really important historical critiques and kind of present um, a, a compelling and elucidating narrative that helps, that adds a lot of explanatory power when it comes to uh, trying to wrap our heads around just how and why mass incarceration uh, went down the way that it did and the you know, legacies behind that. But both of those, and I'm not the first to say, say this, in, in fact, uh, Setsu Shikamatsu, the director of Visions of Abolition, who is working on a, a sequel to that, that documentary, she, she's pointed out that, that 13th and Alexander's book, they don't, they're not abolitionist, not only in the sense they don't put forward an explicit abolitionist message, but worse than that, they neglect and in so doing, arguably erase all of the important work that abolitionists have done within the field that they're studying or that they're throwing light on. And so nowhere in, in the new Jim Crow do you see much mention at all of, say, critical resistance or the, the massive conferences that took place in the 1990s, the work that people like Angela Davis and Ruth Wilson Gilmore and others, of, of course, too, uh, have and Dylan Rodriguez, for, for that matter, uh, have been involved in over the years, uh, the on-the-ground organizing work as well as the kind of public pedagogy, political educational work uh, that offers up uh, a more deep-seated critique of what it is they're criticizing. And without that, and so it's an omission of that deep-seated critique, one which I think 
also offers a lot of explanatory power and also points away uh, a better way forward. Uh, and and that's that's kind of what it is at issue too. And so trying to address those erasures as as part of a pedagogical project seems worthwhile to me and maybe part of that uh, simultaneously part of the project of trying to expound upon uh, those traditions that I mentioned that could help displace or render obsolete the old institutional barriers to realizing the kind of meaningful education and practices of of justice that I uh, that some of us are aspiring toward. Yeah, and for, for, uh, you know, I'll just end with this because I think we're, we should finish sure. up here. Is you know, uh, for sure, I don't think it's something that stops. It's an ongoing project, an ongoing tending and reorganizing and resisting and struggle is definitely needed whatever metaphor you choose to do it. Um, I'm going to close us out here with that. Uh, thank you for listening to the New American Baccalaureate podcast. Uh, please, if you haven't checked out the website to see what the New American Baccalaureate itself is trying to do to help the reconstruction of higher learning, in particular liberal arts colleges, uh, you should. Uh, uh, where, and uh, if you have questions, please contact me. Uh, we look forward to having you listen in for other interviews. Thanks again for listening in.